We took a break from the walk through John um, to cover a series on men, women, and marriage, a timely one that we thought would be helpful for the families here, and heard report that that was helpful for many, so I'm glad for that. We also then took some time to do some glorious Christmas sermons around the holiday, and here we are returning back to our bread and butter, walking through books of the Bible a verse at a time. We're going to be in verses 29 through 34 of John chapter 1. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn there. I'm going to go ahead and read our text for today out loud, pray, then dive back in going through a verse or two at a time, which is our typical practice here. So go ahead and open up to John 1, starting in 29. Let's read and I'll pray. The next day, he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me, because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water, that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this text. As John in this text is preaching to a group of sinful Israelites who are coming to him in the wilderness, I pray that we would likewise be served as those who are coming to this text to hear what we need to hear to have our hearts and lives prepared for Jesus every day. So use this to soften us, to provoke our impulses to need Jesus, and help us to love Your Word more because of the time we spend in this text this morning. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Going back to that first verse again, the next day... He saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now, this is an interesting paragraph because it starts with the climax of John's life, and then it goes back to tell of the events that led up to that climax. The author here, John the Evangelist, jumps right to that climax first. In other words, John the Baptist just made a bold proclamation, an amazing proclamation. In fact, this proclamation was the sum total goal of John's purpose in life. John lived for the expressed purpose of making this declaration right here. It is why he was put on this earth, to say, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Talk about it being all downhill from there. Because it was the absolute culmination of the purpose of his existence. John could bow out of being on stage, retreat back into the shadows, and actually that's, I think, what we essentially see happen from this point forward. But how is it that he arrived at that conclusion? So he makes the declaration, behold, the Lamb of God... Who takes away the sin of the world? How does John know that this is 
the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. We will find that out in a few verses. But first, I want you to consider that John had just told the people that he was not the Messiah. He doubled down on it in a few different ways. Just because it's been such a long time since we've been in John chapter 1 together, I'm just going to read through the paragraph preceding this, starting in verse 19. I'll read it rather quickly, uh, but just to remind you where we had been, what had taken place just before John says this. John 1, 19 through 28, I'm going to read. And this is the testimony of John, when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed... I am not the Christ. And they asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, No. So they said to him, Who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees. They asked him, then why are you baptizing if you're neither the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. So the people had been gathering The location that they're going to is, by all accounts, about 25 miles from Jerusalem. It's essentially in the wilderness. There are two different cities by the name of Bethany at this time. One of them is on the other side of the Jordan. One is closer to Bethlehem and uh, and to Jerusalem. John is in the former. He's in the further away, the wilderness Bethany. And so the people did not just happen to stop by on their way home from work. Those who'd go see John out in the wilderness would quite likely have to make a reasonably significant trip to hear what this man had to say. And while they had gathered together, and John was baptizing these people, Jesus shows up in the crowd. Now, what we hear about in this verse is, again, like I said, it's the culmination. This is after Jesus has already been observed by John, been baptized, as we'll get there. But this is what he says on this occasion. He says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The imagery of a sacrificial lamb was very significant to the Jewish people. It was a lamb that was offered as a sacrifice on the Passover, which the people of God would annually celebrate. And that reminded them of the time when they were slaves in Egypt, and God redeemed them out of that slavery by providing a sacrifice of a lamb for each household. That would have been definitely in the minds of the Jewish people. A lamb would have been offered up as a part of the daily sacrifice for the sins of the people of Israel under the Old Covenant. Even Isaiah, the notable Old Testament prophet who foretells the coming of Jesus, prophesied that the Messiah would be led like a lamb to the slaughter. I want to read for you that prophecy. Isaiah 53, 7 says, He, the Messiah, was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Here, John identifies Jesus before this watching crowd as the Messiah, this needed sacrifice, the one who would suffer, the one who would give his life 
for the people. And that's what he says next, as he says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. If you were to do a quick just word study on how many times John uses the word world in his accounting here, uh, John the Evangelist, the one who writes the gospel according to John we're walking through here, 78 times, maybe 79 depending on how you count it. He uses the word world, and uses it in a whole bunch of different ways. And we're going to certainly be talking more and more about those as time goes on. But this is why the people were getting baptized by John. Because they were acknowledging and repenting of their sins. Sin was the reason the people were gathering, an acknowledgement of it. Sin is what they needed the Messiah ultimately to deal with. I want you to consider with me another time in Israel's history when God's people followed a prophet into the wilderness for the expressed purpose of acknowledging and repenting of their sins to restore a right relationship with God. I want you to think about this with me. It just so happened in God's providence last night, I'm reading through our typical Bible time with my kids before they go to bed, and we got to 1 Samuel 7. And I'll, I'll, you should check this out on your own. I was amazed with how many parallels are drawn from that point, putting, pushing us forward to John the Baptist and the coming of Jesus. Samuel was an Old Testament prophet, prophet of God. After the people had entered the promised land, they had spent 400 years battling with the nations of Canaan. And during this time, they were repeatedly oppressed by those nations over and over and over. Why? Because they continued to sin against God. Continued to do what was right in, his, in their own eyes. The book of the Judges tell us occasionally of certain parts of Israel, certain regions, certain little territories of Israel and different tribes that would have some minor successes for a period against their oppressors. But then inevitably, the people would turn their back on God all over again and find themselves yet again oppressed by those nations in Canaan. 400 years of this went by until God sent the prophet Samuel. Samuel, like John the Baptist, pulled no punches. He unapologetically called the people to repent of their sins. But while this was happening, while the people had gathered together, you see, he called them out into the wilderness. They gathered on a hilltop where he was crying out to the people, acknowledge your sins. We have sinned before God. And the people are finally saying, this is what must break this 400-year cycle of pain. Turn once and for all to God. They were acknowledging their sins out in the wilderness before this prophet, calling them to repentance. And as this takes place, the national enemies, the big bad guys of Israel, uh, against Israel, the Philistines, get wind of this. They hear about the Israelites gathered around this hilltop. And so the, the chief ruler of the Philistines uh, says, they're vulnerable. Now's the time to attack, and we can once and for all deal with this Israelite scourge. And so he amasses his army, comes against the Israelites. Well, to be sure, the Israelites see the king coming. They know that they are certainly in a vulnerable position. They are about to be wiped out. But rather than appeal to all of the worldly ways of victory, they turn to Samuel in the spirit of what they'd already been doing, in repentance of sin, and say this to Samuel in 1 Samuel 7, 8 through 9. And the people of Israel said to Samuel, do not cease to cry out to the Lord our God for us that he may save us from the hand of the Philistines. 
So Samuel took a nursing lamb and offered it up as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. And Samuel cried out to the Lord for Israel, and the Lord answered him. You should read the story. It goes on to say that God wipes out the Philistines to such a degree on that day that for the rest of Samuel's lifetime, they did not come back in power to invade Israel. Soundly, God defeated those enemies. So the prophet brought the people into the wilderness to acknowledge their sin after a period of 400 years of being constantly oppressed by their enemies because of their refusal to turn to God. And God received the sacrifice of a lamb on behalf of the people and once again delivered them from their enemy. Do you see the comparisons with John the Baptist and the proclamation that the lamb of God has come? It, of course, is Samuel who will proclaim the come of David eventually. The people choose Saul. They want a king. God chooses David, a man after his own heart. And Jesus, of course, is the son of David. So many comparisons. In John the Baptist's day, we see something very similar to what happened in this story. Now, I want to say, I think that John's identification of Jesus as the Lamb of God carries far more significance than pointing to a single Old Testament event like this one. I think, it's, I think we see this all over the Old Testament. I think Jesus being the Lamb of God is more significant than one single event. But it is fascinating how God's Word works, isn't it? Even in Jesus' day, the Pharisees, the trusted leaders, were the ones who actually were wicked. In Samuel's day, the priests were wicked, and God had to provide a true prophet to tell the truth. John the Baptist and the Pharisees are much like Samuel and Eli's sons. John goes on to tell us more about this Jesus in verse 30. He says, this is he of whom I said, after me comes a man who ranks before me, because he was before me. Sounds kind of odd. Just think about it. After me comes a man who ranks before me, ranks higher than me. Why? Because he was before me. It's a little bit of a play on words, but all of it is absolute truth, to be sure. Now, you might remember that John the Baptist was six months older than Jesus. That's what the Bible tells us. But here, he says that Jesus came before him, and Jesus also ranks higher than him. So even before John had revealed the identity of Jesus, he already knew that his life's purpose was going to be making much of God much of this Messiah, and not himself. In other words, it is not as though John was seeing himself as simply running a relay race, finally finishing up his lap, and then passing off the baton to another mere runner. No. John is saying that this Messiah has always been altogether greater than him. Always been different Special, wholly unique. Hey, it's my time to bow out. I'll set, pass you over to another prophet just like me. No, no. Someone greater is here. I've had the great privilege of meeting many people who came to saving faith in Jesus later in life. I'm sure some of you could have the same experience. And in my experience, it's often the case 
that a person realizes their inabilities, their faults, etc., before they come face to face with the Savior, with Jesus. In other words, they first realize that they need someone greater than their sins before meeting Jesus. It's not as though they think, I'm my greatest hope, and then run into Jesus. It's, I have, I have, there's no hope if it's in me. And when they come face to face with the Lord, they say, this is a worthy Savior. This is one who can deal with my sin. John always knew that there was someone greater to whom he would direct the people. The one who came before him, who was before him. He'd come after in time, but who was higher in rank, higher in value, higher in every way. He goes on in verse 31, I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came, baptizing with water, that he might be revealed to Israel. He's going to repeat this line another time, but he says, I myself did not know him. He's talking about Jesus. I myself did not know him. It seems to me that John had never met Jesus before, and that would probably fit with the culture and the time. Uh, They didn't live very close to to each other. John seems to spend much of his time growing up in the woods, uh, eating locusts and stuff like that, probably not hanging out with a lot of city folk. Jesus grows up in Nazareth. It would not be unlikely that they would not have interacted Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe they vacationed together at the lake house in the summer. I don't know. But what he does say is that whether or not he knew Jesus as a person, he did not know that Jesus was the Messiah. In fact, in a few verses we'll see, he declares how it was that God revealed that finally, but he didn't know him at first. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. John's whole life was dedicated to serving God and preparing for Jesus' ministry. <clears throat> and how did he do that? How was it that he was preparing for the coming of Jesus? He baptized. That's what it says. But for this purpose I came, baptizing with water. I came, baptizing with water. John came to baptize in order to reveal Jesus to Israel. For this purpose I came baptizing with water, that he might be revealed to Israel. That's why John came to baptize. That's why he arrived on this earth. That's why he was born, in order to reveal the Lord Jesus Christ to the crowds around him. Now, it's important to note that John's baptism before Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection is different than the baptism Christians undergo today. John's baptism was for repentance, as we will see. It was an acknowledgement of sin, a need for a Savior. In fact, Paul will make this distinction very clearly elsewhere. Uh, Maybe the most notable place will be in Acts 19. When Paul is is journeying through uh, Asia Minor, he comes upon Ephesus. And when he gets to Ephesus, he, um, he meets a bunch of people who are disciples of John. They heard of this John the Baptist guy. They've heard of his ministry. Hey, you need to repent of your sins. God is not pleased. Yeah, yeah, he's not pleased. Well, yeah, they'll repent. And so they all get baptized into John's baptism. I think it's likely that they didn't meet John personally and do that. So it was probably they acknowledged what John was saying that they heard from afar and had been baptized in Ephesus. And this is what Paul says about that baptism in Acts 19. Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is Jesus. 
So even John's baptism was not chiefly for the people, but for the revealing of Christ. For the revealing of Christ. This is why we don't continue in the baptism of John. There is, there's an acknowledgement of repentance, but we don't take a person, uh, dunk them in the water in order for them to acknowledge sins before God, and then after that say, okay, now uh, confess saving faith in Jesus. Okay, now you're, now you're saved. Okay, back in the water for a second baptism. That's not the case. The baptism that he compares this with is the baptism of the Holy Spirit, that Christ will send the regenerator himself, the Holy Spirit, to bring to new spiritual life the heart of the sinner. During Jesus' early life, he was not yet known by the people to be the Messiah. That's why John says that he came baptizing that he might be revealed to Israel. Jesus was not yet revealed. Jesus became revealed at the baptism event. In other words, John could have baptized nobody but Jesus. But he was baptizing until one of the baptizees would be proved to be the Messiah. God has given me a vision. God has told me. We'll see this in a second. God, God has said, I will know who the Messiah is when one of the people that I baptize, the Holy Spirit descends and lands upon him. That's how I will know. So I'm just going to baptize, 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 baptize until I find the Messiah and then declare and reveal him to the people. That's why John baptized. That's what he says. I want you to remember that the people didn't know Jesus to be the Messiah until that day. Remember that Joseph and Mary... They did know that Jesus was the Messiah, didn't they? Yeah, the angels uh, appeared to them and explained and told them supernatural events uh, that, that uh, brought about Jesus' birth. Multiple touch points that God supernaturally brought together to confirm it so there couldn't be any confusion. Multiple witness accounts. Yes, God has said that when we see uh, the, the sign of a baby swaddled in claws and lying in a manger, that's the Messiah. The angels told us. The Magi show up. The angels told us over and over. Joseph and Mary knew their son was the Messiah. There was no doubt about it. But you'll remember that they fled to Egypt to avoid Herod's persecution and his pursuit. Tried to kill the new king of Israel. Even killed a whole bunch of baby boys in Bethlehem and the surrounding area in order to get rid of this uh, usurper of his throne as he'd see it. They then returned after Herod died, probably a couple of years later. It follows then that they would not have, when they finally moved back to Nazareth, they didn't come back to Bethlehem, they went to Nazareth, which was Joseph and Mary's hometown. It follows then that they did not expose Jesus' identity to others in order to avoid undue attention until the right time. In other words, and I acknowledge, I don't, we don't know clear passages in the Bible about this other than what we're reading right here. Jesus is revealed by his baptism. That's how. I highly doubt Mary and Joseph wandered around, my son's the Messiah, what's your son do? I think that that would have exposed him to a kind of danger that they would have been concerned about and had to wait until the time for him to be revealed in God's good timing. One of the reasons that this actually is a bit significant is to warn you from other errors. In church history, there have been certain traditions that have developed in some false gospel accounts of Jesus' early childhood. Someone trying to make a quick buck 
and get influence off of the fact that they'll say, well, I, I know things about Jesus' childhood, and people would all want to know about that. They claim that Jesus performed certain miracles as a, as a kid. But the next chapter, John 2, tells us that Jesus turning water into wine was his first sign after his baptism, after his revealing. All this to be said, Jesus was unknown as the Messiah until John's proclamation. So here's, I want you to consider the significance of this. The most significant arrival in the history of humanity the most significant announcement of the most important individual to ever walk the face of the earth. How did God proclaim it? By a crazy guy in camel clothing standing in a river saying, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's how. God chose to reveal his word through the proclamation of a preacher. And this is the way that he chose to make his son known. The same thing is true today, isn't it? You need to hear this. You need to press this deeply into your minds, okay? Because... There are people today that will try to get you to think that the proclamation of God's word is not as powerful as a miracle happening over here. Over there. It's not as powerful as many other ways that God could uh, bring the gospel to bear. No. We need to remember the importance of gospel proclamation. And not only on Sunday from the voice of a preacher, but all the time. The proclamation of God's word must go out. This is how we reach the lost world today. Paul said it this way in Romans 10, 13 through 14. He said, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Okay, how then will people call on the name of the Lord? This is what he goes on to say. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? God has always used the voices of people, the words of people, Sinners, fallible people, you and me, to declare his truth. Use your voice. Use your words to tell people about the good news of Jesus. I do not believe for a second, based upon verses like this, I do not believe for a second there have been any tribes, nations, tongues in the world that have spontaneously come to saving faith in Christ in the last 2,000 years apart from the proclamation from one person's words to another. It could be by writing letters and books and such. It could be by, in our more modern day, a radio or internet ministries. It could be even by those little, those little boxes. You might know of them that some missionaries have built together. You wind them up, and then they'll, uh, they'll recite the passages of the Bible in uh, the language of some tribes, people who don't have a written language. But one way or the other, there will be an unbroken line of one person's words to another all the way through history, going all the way back to Jesus Christ himself. There will not be any spontaneous salvations taking place apart from what the Bible says is how the word is spread. That's why it is so important for us to commit to, to get that, our minds totally wrapped around the the need to proclaim the gospel. We will never have too many gospel proclaimers as believers. 
That's what we are to do. It's how God brought it about at the very revelation of the Messiah. Jesus, that guy there is the Messiah. And it was said by some dude in a river. I was thinking about, as I was writing some of this up, my brother Jim Kennelly. I know most, if not all of you, know Jim Kennelly. He's, he goes by Encourager Jim, the old hippie guy and big beard, sits in the back. That brother, that brother will not shut up about the gospel, man. He, he won't go anywhere. <laughs> you, can, you can just follow a wake of people having freshly heard the gospel, and if you go fast enough, you'll run into Jim. It's awesome. It's humbling. It wouldn't matter to me one bit what people in the world thought about Jim. The Bible says, how beautiful are the feet, the feet of those who bring the good news. Jesus says in Matthew 5, that the one who proclaims the truth of the Scriptures, the law, and teaches what He has commanded, is greatest in the kingdom. You and I must never neglect the charge for believers to share truth with one another. There has been so much made in past generations in the West about a silent, quiet, evangelistic lifestyle where by your life, people will see your good deeds. And, and, and we must live that way. People should always look from the outside and see our good deeds and glorify our Father who is in heaven. Amen. But it doesn't stop there. The proclamation of the gospel, the explanation of the truth, the declaration of Jesus and the good news must go out from us. And when the world shouts loudly for us to keep our mouths silent, we should take that as a cue to be even bolder with the declaration. John continues in verses 32 through 33. And John bore witness, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. John came to baptize with water for repentance. Jesus came to baptize with the Holy Spirit. That simply means that he sends the Holy Spirit to convict the world of sin and to regenerate the heart of the lost sinner. No matter how much water you get in to acknowledge sin, that would be irrelevant if you didn't, through saving faith in Jesus, receive justification and new life. John again says that he did not know Jesus. Did you catch that there? He said it again. I myself did not know him. He repeats that line again. But God had revealed to John that he would provide a sign to confirm the identity of the Messiah. What was the sign? The sign, he says, uh, he who sent me to baptize, so John was sent by God to baptize. It wasn't just his idea. Hey, I got this idea. People should get in the water. No, God told him, so he just obeyed God. He said to me, he on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. This is the one. That's the Messiah. That's the Christ, the anointed one. 
when Jesus shows up to get baptized, uh, Matthew's account, it seems like John already knows something. I think the Spirit's already moving. It's like there's static in the air because he sees Jesus and he's like, uh, you are more righteous than me. I should be baptized by you. And Jesus goes, no, to fulfill all righteousness, I must get into these waters. But then, once he observes the sign of the Holy Spirit descending like a dove and remaining on Jesus and the voice of the Father proclaiming loudly, you are my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. John knows definitively that this Jesus is the Messiah. He's come to the culmination of his life, the purpose for his existence. Now he knows. Now he knows who he's supposed to tell everybody else about. It's him. It's always been him. This is the Lamb of God. The account of Jesus' baptism is actually not told here. It's just kind of quickly referenced as though it already happened, right? But it is told in the other gospel accounts. I just want to read for you from the Luke account, Luke chapter 3, how it says, Now when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened, Luke says, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove, And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. A couple things. Have you ever seen those paintings of Jesus standing in the water and the the light kind of shining down like there's a fog machine, right? Beam. And then there's a dove kind of coming down, landing on Jesus or kind of floating in the air. I'll admit I kind of mocked that general idea. Well, it's not a dove, it's like a dove, you know? Luke, very accurate reteller here, says... The Holy Spirit came down in bodily form, like a dove. So I don't know what that means. I'll be honest. I don't know what that means. I seems like the figure of a dove descending would be sufficient, but it had to be bodily because it could not. If it could not be observed by John and perhaps the others present, if it could not be observed to confirm, and he just like, well, I had this feeling. I had this feeling. He looked special. Like he kind of had a smile on his face in a special way other people don't. When he got back. No, 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 no. God didn't leave it up to chance for him. So that later John would go, could I have gotten that wrong? No. God kindly made it very clear. Something physically manifested. And then the Father's voice clarifying for certain who Jesus was so that there was no confusion whatsoever. No doubt. The Messiah is this Jesus sent by God. Why did Jesus get baptized? We already said that John's baptism was a baptism of repentance, an acknowledgement of sin. It was was a symbolic way of saying, I need my sins washed from me. How then could Jesus rightly get in the waters of baptism if he was sinless? The New Testament scholar Vern Poitras says it like this, Jesus' baptism is an act of humility. He consents to be counted as if he were a sinner along with everyone else. This act foreshadows the time on the cross when he will die for the sins of the people of Israel and indeed for the sins of all those who are his. Let me ask you, who deserves death? The sinner. The wage of sin is death. Did Jesus die? Did he die a criminal's death? Yes. Did he deserve that? No. 
You see, Jesus identifies with us even in our sins. You and I must repent of our sins in order to be saved. But Jesus could not repent of his sins because he didn't have any sins. So he got into the waters of baptism to identify with our sinfulness and to express our need to have our sins acknowledged and dealt with once and for all. If you're not a believer here today, you need to feel and hear this. This is the heart of the gospel right here. You are a sinner in dire need of a savior. Your sins have set you against God and death will certainly be the result. No matter what happens, you will die. But God in his great love sent his only son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. If you repent of your sins and turn in faith to Jesus, you will be raised as he was crucified, buried, and raised. You too will be raised to new life. That's our appeal to you. Don't let one more day go by. Believe on Jesus for salvation. It's your only hope. You need a sacrifice on your behalf. And Jesus is the only sufficient sacrifice. You're a sinner. Brother and sister, Christians here, you're sinners. But the sinless Son of God identifies with you. What should you do with your sins then? Bring them to Jesus. Jesus loved sinners. He came for sinners. These people went out to the wilderness. They went to the Jordan River to acknowledge, confess, and repent of their sins. And that is where Jesus met them. I want you to consider this for a moment. It is not as though Jesus waited on a high mountain nearby and watched until the little worms finally bayed free from all their sin, made their way up to the precipice of his worth. He saw them down in their sins, which for the record is one of the geographically lowest places on our planet, the Jordan River near the Dead Sea. And Jesus goes down to the depths into the sin, into the waters themselves. What love, what mercy. He condescends to where we need him. I know that I've shared my testimony with you before. I've shared it with many people, but I remember so distinctly when the Lord had done a mighty work in my life and changed me at a point that I look back and just weep. I had been living as though I hated God. I had been living as though I was God. I was an enemy of God. And I remember going to sleep one night, hating repentance and loving my sin, and waking up the following morning, hating my sin, and crying out for a Savior. And in the Lord's kindness, he led me to Psalm 34, 18. It became the most significant verse of my life up until that point. It was the first verse, I think, in history for me at that point I had ever genuinely meditated upon and just looked at and wept over. I wrote it on a little note card and kept it in my back pocket until it was almost gone for months. And I circled it in every Bible I've ever had and underlined it. Psalm 34, 18 says that the Lord is close to the brokenhearted, and he saves those who are crushed in spirit. And the reason that was so significant for me 
is because I didn't understand many things, but I did know this, that when I realized and acknowledged sin, when I cried out to him in hatred of my sin, he did not say, come up here, come to, come to me now, son. Climb the path through the thorns, through the brambles. You can do it. The Lord is close to the brokenhearted. He saves those who are crushed in spirit. If you're not a believer today, the Lord meets us in the depths. If you are a believer here today, the Lord still meets us in our depths. He is so kind. He is so good and gracious. You and I must acknowledge our sinfulness before God. It is on the basis of our sins and our need for those sins to be forgiven that Jesus even came. Jesus was once pressed by some hypocritical Pharisees. They were really exercised by the fact that he was hanging out with sinners, tax collectors, prostitutes. Why don't you hang out with us righteous people? If you really are from God. Jesus said this in Matthew 9. Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came to call the righteous, not to call the righteous, but sinners. Those Pharisees were sinners, but they couldn't see it. They were sick. They couldn't see it. Christ from the very beginning, even in the forerunner to Christ, has made it clear that our introductions to our Savior are always through a path to repentance. Nobody accepts Christ, receives Him as a Savior, and years later realizes they're a sinner. It doesn't happen. It's not possible. Because for you to confess and put your faith in Christ, you must confess the shortcomings that put Him on the cross. In fact, Jesus even warned us to not think like those wicked Pharisees who pray, thanking God that they are not so sinful as all those wicked other people. Jesus tells us to pray, pray like the publican, the tax collector, who knows his moral debt before God, who feels deeply the imperfection of his own heart and appeals to God not on the basis of his own righteousness. God, thank you for making me so righteous. And because I'm so righteous, I'm sure you will listen to me for sure. Have I not earned your ear? No. The tax collector who stands from afar beating his breast and saying, Lord, I am not worthy to approach you. He will go home justified because the Lord is near to the brokenhearted. Because Jesus descends into our sin and deals with them once and for all. We must appeal to God on the basis of his mercy alone. You, you and I must live in a constant state of acknowledging sins and repenting of them over and over and over and over and over and over again. When our brothers and sisters approach us and say, hey, I think you, you failed here, and others come along and say, I really think you have. Acknowledge, repent, confess, deal with it, trust. Seek the mercy of God, and you will receive it. This kind of humility is required for the life of a believer. It's so helpful to have people in your life who love you enough to be around you and graciously, kindly, even reluctantly at times will, will help identify for you some places where you're, you're, not, you're not quite yet conformed to the image of Christ. That you may feel the joy 
of God's mercy in sanctifying you all afresh. John continues and concludes this part of the passage by saying, And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. We just need to know that while the term Son of God is all over the New Testament and can be used in a general sense, general sense to refer to believers, brothers and sisters in the faith, that, that, that is occasional. John very clearly uses this term to refer to somebody significant, unique, distinct. Remember, it is John 3.16. It says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. It's in, it's in John that we see the comparison that Jesus makes with himself and God when Jesus calls himself the Son of God, and the Pharisees get all upset. Ah, he calls himself the Son of God, making himself equal with God. You see? So when John the Baptist says this here, he doesn't just mean, ah, it's a godly man. No, no, he's bearing witness. This is somebody unique. This is somebody equal with the creator we've been worshiping for generations. We're about to see in upcoming weeks, upcoming texts, that the focus of this gospel shifts away from John. He fades back into the woodwork. Jesus takes the limelight and John goes back just exactly as his life was designed to do. We'll see John again. We'll hear from him again. But what he says and does points to Jesus, and it's going to be significant when we do see him again. John's whole life was dedicated to serving God and preparing for Jesus' ministry. Is that true of your life? Would the others who know you say that? Man, this brother, this sister, this neighbor, this friend, this coworker, they just, they, all they're about is this Jesus that they love. Let us live to make much of Christ. Let's pray. Father, we love and praise you and thank you for your word. Lord, I pray that you would comfort us with your truth and challenge us with it. Thank you for the mercy you've extended and put your love on display in sending your son. Help us to not forsake that reality. Help us to never think we're beyond repentance. Help us, help us to never think that we don't need to be reminded by just what John's crowd needed to be reminded of. We need a savior. And let us revel in that, Lord, because we know it's a path to great joy. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.